Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So today's episode is a hugely, hugely massive episode on the mindset side of things. So today's episode is with the amazing Anthony Walsh, and we could have got about three, four hours worth of content out of this. We were talking for ages beforehand and ages afterwards and very like-minded and Anthony has an amazing podcast called The Roadman Cycling Podcast and he's had some incredible guests from Tour de France winners, massive cycling names and it's it's incredible to see like the amount, like he's had over 4 million downloads on his podcast and he's had the likes of Brian Keane Paul Germany, the names that you kind of recognise out of that, but Bradley Wiggins, that kind of side of things. So today's episode is hugely beneficial towards people who are looking to improve a mindset. We could have gone down the, 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 the amazing world of cycling, but, and there are the questions I had angled, but after talking to Anthony for a good while, all fair, we're like, no, let's go down a different route. So, we talk about Anthony's background, Anthony's history, how he got in from professional footballer at Bohemians Football Club in Ireland and in Dublin to going into the world of cycling, looking at like success isn't a straight line. And that's going to be the headline of today's episode, dealing with the crashes and some of the crashes and how he recovered himself through that. And one of the amazing stories that he tells in that. And we talk about the Kim Kardashian thing and the Met Gala. And he brings up a very, very, very valid point around it and why that it's not her fault, if you know what I mean. And there's other albums. We have an open discussion around that. The importance of setting goals and how to actually achieve them and how to set them out. The importance of living by your values. And then we talk about the importance of starting over. So there's a lot of a lot of different things and a lot of different elements to this to this episode. So if you're in, if you are a cyclist and you are listening to this. I would highly involve, recommend going to roadmancycling.com to get in touch with Anthony for coaching. He has an amazing team there and he's an, an amazing human. And then if you're interested in cycling or just want to listen to mindset episodes with the, with the top athletes um, in, in their field, go to the Roadman Cycling Podcast and you'll find amazing guests there. So I highly recommend it. So hopefully you guys enjoy the episode with Anthony Walsh. Anthony, how are we, sir? Good. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's nice to be on the other end of the microphone. I know it's it's very weird sensation when you're getting interviewed. You kind of get a little bit nervous. It's a lot less preparation. Yeah, you're not you weren't big man for preparation before this one. No, we were chatting off air, and I was like, you don't really prepare for conversations normally. So I feel it artificial when someone wants to say, "Oh, well, here's what we're going to talk about today." I feel like it's my oral exam or something, and leaving cert again. I didn't prepare for that either. So <laughs> no, I just went in, and they asked, they say something to you like, "Hello." And I'd say, oh, hello, I've six brothers, five sisters, and 19 cousins. Here's their professions. Here's their names. The trick was to just talk for a full half an hour and not let them get another question in. Yeah, exactly. Just keep going, keep going. Um, so anyone who doesn't, isn't aware of your story, Anthony, I know we are kind of like, we've been talking for about an hour before we actually press record. <laughs> so we probably should have pressed record. It's like a Joe Rogan without the weed. Um, so can you tell us your background and kind of, what you're doing and the amazing podcast they have, which has blown up. Yeah, it, it definitely hasn't been a straight line to where I am, am at the moment. And I think which makes it more interesting because none of us really like any sort of straight line success. It's normally like you like someone that has a limited amount of traction and then they absolutely go to pieces and crumble and their life goes to bits and then they come back to surpass where they previously were. So I was on one road and I'd gone through law school, seven years in law school, uh, you know, undergrad, master's, and then into King's Inn. So my path ahead was quite laid out and quite safe and quite secure, you know, junior council, work hard into senior council, you know, drive around in a convertible BMW and get a bit fat. But I started cycling in university and I started getting pretty good at it. I was getting some results locally. And as I got into King's Inn Law School, I got to the point where I was getting on the national teams and went across and had the chance to ride the World Student Games and put on an Irish jersey for the first time. And I just got hooked by this. So as soon as I finished law school, I went off and I got a contract in France. And at the time, and I'm sure you've had this experience or your listeners have this experience, when you have that beginner's mentality you're making progress so fast and you're almost getting instant feedback because i was training hard on the bike but i was getting better it was visibly getting i was visibly getting faster and better each week each month so i had a period post law school where i was like well where is the ceiling can i ride the tour de france can i win the tour de france like i don't know where i could go with this i'm just getting so good so fast 
So I went to France and then I got a contract in Canada. I got a contract in the America, moved up to continental level, which is if in it, to give the soccer equivalent, it'd be kind of third division behind uh, pro continental and world tour, which would be the top premier league. So it's a pretty modest standard. It's kind of like I was making 20,000 a year out there, which is was really good for that level. But I kind of found out where the ceiling was and I was like, okay, I'm not going to make it to world tour, the level of sacrifice and I'm coming to the sport quite late. I don't see me progressing past this. And I'd had a number of crashes as well out there and broke a lot of bones, like six bones and one crash. And we get into that because it's a funny story. And I made the choice that the risk to reward just didn't make sense for cycling anymore. So I came home, but I had this love of cycling still. So I wanted it to be a common thread in my life. But I came home and I didn't see cycling as compatible with law. So I decided I needed to set up a business. And then I read, as everyone does and goes on this business journey, and it's like, oh, diversify your income, have multiple streams. So I set up a second business, a third business, a fourth business, and a fifth business. And I was just this serial entrepreneur. And this is, I'm, I'm condensing sort of a three, four year period here. But I got to a point where I was just so busy. I definitely had achieved some material success and had some extra cash in the bank account, but I didn't like who I was becoming. And I was unhappy for the first time in my life. And over the course of one week, I literally burned all that down and pressed reset. I kind of looked at it like a computer game. I've gone the wrong direction here on this level. And the way I've gone is not bringing me success. So I'm just going to stop. I'm going to go backwards and I'm going to just sit still and see what the next direction is. So I went traveling, went you know China, Dubai, all over Europe and the States, spent two years really traveling and figuring out what I wanted to do. And I focused on one question, how can I use cycling as a tool for health, happiness, and longevity? And I came back and started Roadman Cycling and the Roadman Cycling podcast. And they all aim to answer one particular question. And it is that question, how do we use cycling as a tool for health, happiness, and longevity? Because I think we're all kind of on that road to trying to be healthier, trying to be happier, trying to live longer. And, you know, the, the vehicle you choose, it could be a PT, but the vehicle I choose, it's cycling. And I think there's many different ways to skin the cap, but there's definitely some commonalities in it, which we'll get into today, like the importance of strength training, nutrition, motivation, strategic biohacks. I think it's the cycling bit that just differs. Some people choose running, some people choose PT. You mentioned that about the crashes. Yeah, so, dangerous sport. It's a, I've seen. I've seen, I remember. I just think I remember my brother. Like I think he was even. Just, I'm not. He was. He's competing now over in the UK, not at, a, at an amazing level or whatever it is. But he's he's still doing races and challenges and three day races and challenges and all that kind of stuff over there. But one of the things he had a he went over the front of a car and went onto the windscreen and proceeded to cycle on to rowing. <laughs> doing a, d- a double rowing session and then coming back and then his body just went into complete another shutdown. It was like, oh shit, this is happening. How do you yeah. get over that kind of barrier of like in your head of like, oh shit, here's the setback. I'm going to get injured now. I'm out for this at a time. How did you actually talk to yourself around those times? Well, we normalize crashes in cycling quite a lot uh, that we use terms like, oh, it's, it's just road rash. And road rash is a cycling term for your skin is gone. <laughs> like it's, it's pretty severe. And like it will be the equivalent of driving down the motorway, jumping out of a car naked at 60 kilometers an hour and just getting those burns from skidding along the grounds. That's what road rash is. Like they're very, very uncomfortable. But in cycling, we normalize it. And it, for me, that point came when I was like, the, the juice isn't worth the squeeze anymore. After I'd had a crash, I was racing in Detroit and it was a crash in a bunch sprint, like 40 people down. And I came down the worst out of everyone, like at 65 kilometers an hour. And I broke collarbone, fingers, ribs, my uh, glenoid fossa, which is the ball and socket joint in your shoulder, broke right through that. I uh, had a collapsed lung, a uh, bunch of broken fingers. So I was in a bad, bad way on the ground. And the paramedic came to treat me and he's like, well, where do you want to go? And I was like, you know, how do you mean? Where do I want to go? Like, I want to go to the hospital. I'm in bits. And he said, do you have health insurance? And this was something I never thought of. And I did have health insurance, but my legal background was kicking in going, I'm in a professional bike race and I'm getting shipped to the hospital. Where are my numbers and my skin tight aerodynamic skin suit? Does my insurance have a loophole in it where it doesn't cover professional sporting events. So I was like, oh my God. So I started thinking and he's like, with your injuries, the bill is going to be north of $250,000. 
And I was like, okay, well, what's my options here? And he said, hold on one second. And he came back uh, and his wife was Irish. And she's like, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. She's like, do you have someone who can bring you across the border to Canada? And at the time, my girlfriend was there and I was like, yeah. And she's like, give me a bottle of whiskey and some painkillers. And she's like, get in the car and go back to Canada. So I drove eight hours in the back of the car, laid out, drinking whiskey and nailing America's version of Panadol, which did not do much to take the edge off the pain. Got to Toronto and then I, I can't remember quite how long I was in, but I was in hospital for the guts of a week. The injuries were that severe, but it was a shockingly non-enjoyable journey across the border, I can tell you. That's madness. Yeah, I remember the border patrol. Uh, the bike was on the roof, smashed. I was in the back, like laid out. And the border patrol was like, oh, did you have a good trip down to the States? I was like, no, you know what? I've had better. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's madness. Um, but you talk about like the difference because you've, you've gone from being a professional footballer or with, with Bose to going to, it's a team event cycling, but it's yeah. also solo and it's solo within a team. Yeah. It's a, I suppose it's a different, a difficult one to maybe conceptualize from the other mainstream sports, but yeah, it's a very, very team orientated event. Uh, you have one guy sort of designated the team leader for the day and everyone else is kind of like to use a chess analogy pawns and you're strategically using up your pawns throughout the day to try and give your team leader the best chance of success at the end of the day but the races come in sort of different types because you could have multi-day races you could have single day races you could have short criterium races which are literally around hells in the states so it is a it's a difficult sport to understand and it's probably one of the, the barriers they have for it becoming truly mainstream that races like the Tour de France are hard to explain to someone what's going on. It's not like put the ball in the net more times than the other team puts the ball in the net. And how did you find the challenges from going that's from such a team atmosphere of like you're all with the one goal to then you're also going with the one direction when you're cycling but you secretly want to be the leader. If you know what I mean. Yeah, you kind of settle into your role though. It's not like everyone's trying to be the leader, especially at pro. You know, there's just some super talented guys at professional level. So if you want to make a career and get a contract the next year, you kind of settle into what your role is. So you might have a specific strength. So I'm like six foot two, almost six foot three. I'm never gonna be a 52 kilogram Colombian climber. So for me to be a team leader, you know, it's not really going to be something that's physiologically possible. You know, there's some crazy, you know, your area of specialty on weight loss and nutrition, but some of the crazy practices that were going on in cycling to shed weight, to get people like me to become lighter, like decalcifying bones to try and lose weight is crazy stuff. What's the show? What's it? Because you're talking about some of the stuff you're talking off air. What's some of the stupid shit you've done? Yeah, the, the stupidest stuff I've done was, and again, just so normalized through a, a poor culture within cycling, uh, getting ready for national hill climb championships. I was training later in the day, so I would ride through lunch and then coming home after the ride and just having sleeping tablets and fizzy water and going to bed the next day. Now, I didn't do that for a long period of time. I was just getting ready for a hill climb, which is totally a weight-based there's only two variables that determine success in a hill climb. It's your power and your weight. So it's, yeah, very, very unhealthy. But, you know, we see these unhealthy. And again, we chatted briefly off air about the Kim Kardashian uh, crash diet getting into dresses. And it, I've seen it getting so much hate online, especially from nutritionists and personal trainers saying, you know, it's a disgraceful example. But it's like, is it? Like, is it any worse than McGregor making weight for a fight? Like that's her. Someone fight. said that to me, so I put up a post about it. And my issue isn't obviously she said that she did it. She said she crashed dieted for it. My issue isn't with that. My issue is that fad dieting and crash dieting is still so rife that she's she's caught up in that as well. She could have those body insecurities that normal people do, and whether she is looking well or whether she's not looking great, she's going to be in the magazine. She can't win. People are out together and she's in that kind of limbo mode of if I look great, I'm going to be in the papers anyway. If I don't look great, I'm going to be in the papers anyway. And put her, people are putting on the worst dress at the Met Gala. That's what my issue is with it. Do I condone what she's doing? She doesn't need me to condone. She doesn't really give a shit what a PT or a nutritionist in Dublin says. But as you said, 
what's the difference between Kelly Harrington or Katie Taylor doing the crash diets in order to make weight? Is it as healthy? We don't know what they're doing. They're not publicizing it. It's a shockingly unhealthy practice for any athlete I've talked to, according to weight. It's one of the most extreme practices any athlete can go through. I'd, on my podcast last week, I had, depending on when this comes out, I had uh, Paddy Hulhan, the mixed martial arts fighter who came up with Conor McGregor. But talking about cutting weight, it's so, so extreme. And it's, you know, I've been around girls who've cut weight for weddings and things like that. And what the fighters go through, it's insanity. But we, we glamorize it. But at the same token, the same people who glamorize the Kelly Harrington, Katie Taylor, what an amazing example Katie is. You know, on the other hand, they are condemning the crash diets for the likes of Kim Kardashian. But events like that are essentially her Madison Square Garden title fight. Her brand is built around that stuff. So I think it's a confusing area at the moment. Yeah, it is. Because I think you're, and that's the, that's the problem with where, say, nutrition and training, all that kind of stuff is. And I know you've got you've got people, you've had Paul Dermody on, you've had Brian Keane on and stuff like that. And they would be on the, the, the side of caution of, you shouldn't be dieting all, dieting all the time. Or you shouldn't want to lose weight all the time. That's the element of what they, they truly believe in. When it comes to losing weight for, like I've spoken to other people and we've had in the podcast and they deal with athletes. We put athletes up on pedestals. We also forget that during coronavirus, they probably didn't see their families for two years. They were just horse out, played three or four football matches every week. And we're just left to do with their own thing. And a lot of them are struggling mentally now. But we're also forgetting the probably they have to eat a certain way each day or each week to get to, like you were talking about having spinach in the cinema. Yeah. That's the bit that we don't see. We only we see don't. The, and I think we're on mainstream. The problem with trying to give one message tailored to everyone and say stuff like crash diets are bad. Yeah, they are bad. But it, it's like a blanket statement like, drugs are bad or like guns are bad well it's like the, there's also a lot of good in some of these everything we do doesn't need to be sustainable i don't think and just playing devil's advocate on this a little bit uh you know if i'm saving for a house saving 50 percent of my uh monthly salary it's not sustainable but it doesn't need to be sustainable i only need to live like a monk until i save the down payment and then i can move to a different version of sustainability but I would say that's for an overwhelming good in that that's going to be something that you're going to be in for X amount of years. If you are crash dieting, you are probably going for something for a short-term fix. Yes, if you know at the end road, it's going to be an eight-week cut for a holiday and you're aware of that, that the weight will probably go back up. But if it's something that you're trying to lose weight continuously, you're trying to lose the same 20 kg over and over again, and you're putting on 30 kg when you're trying to lose the initial 20 kg, then it's not the most conducive outcome. It's the approach that needs the tailoring then. Yeah, so definitely. I don't think it's, an, there's a little bit of a difference between the two, I would say, from talking to people on a daily basis on it. That yet there's a, there's a, there's a people who can, who can do a eight week, 10 week cut and get to their goal. Like I've done it for photo shoots, but did I feel great afterwards? No. Do what I recommend it to anyone? Probably not, but that's my own cognitive bias. But I suppose it doesn't. It boils down to your arm, which is a nice segue probably to the next section. It, it boils down to maybe goals. It boils down to what is your goal out of this. If your eight-week crash diet to the photo shoot is part of your brand and you need it, you know, there's a long-term good coming from that photo shoot in brand building and storytelling that you're using it, and then you can move past that and set a new goal. And it's this is why I think maybe the difference between we don't see with celebrities a lot of time what their goal is. We just assume, oh, well, that's not sustainable. Where athletes, it's very definitely signposted. Okay, my goal is that title fight. And then we see them putting on a bit of weight again and then getting ready for the next goal. And for us, definitely in cycling, that's something I encourage all my athletes uh, to do. It's really diving into what does success look like? And one of the best conversations I had was with a previous coach where he was saying, like, if you came back and we had this chat 12 months from now, like, what has to happen in 12 months for you to go, oh my God, that was such an amazing year. What has to happen in every area of your life? Like, what things do you have to have? What things do you have to do? And who do you have to be? 
And I like breaking down goals into those categories rather than just because I personally suffer, suffer from a lack of creativity with goals sometimes where I'm like, okay, what do I want? So I'm like, oh, staring at a blank page trying to figure out what I want can be very hard. But if I try and break it down as what five things do I want to have? What five things do I want to do? And what five things do I want to be? Then it becomes more tangible for me. Do you always need to have a goal though? For me, I like having goals. Yeah. I don't know if I need to have a goal, but I like having goals. I feel from, you know, my own meandering life experience that the thing that makes me happiest is progress. And that that doesn't have to be progress in a narrow sense. So when I was in my uh, sort of darkest phase, when I had you know, all the businesses running at once and I found myself, you know, I've always diaried and looking back and reading my diaries then, they were quite dark. And when I look back at it, I was only focused on progress in one area of my life, financial. So everything else was in neglect. So now I try and structure my life into multiple different areas, like a ship with different compartments. So if one compartment gets flooded, the rest of the ship still stays buoyant. So I have like personal relationships. I have financial. I have my relationship with spirituality. I have self-mastery. I have sport. I have family relationship, including relationship with my girlfriend. So each of those sort of unique areas, I'll try and set goals within them and progress within each of those areas. And this is really nice because if one thing starts going really bad, if my business starts going really bad, it's not like I'm a bad person or I'm a failure. It's like, okay, well, I have five or six other areas that are all actually moving really well. I just have one area. It's taking on a bit of water at the moment. But when I had just all the businesses and my whole life was about chasing material goals and financial success, when if that starts going bad, it's very easy to label of a shit life. Yeah, because I know you've spoken about like you've had businesses, you were, you were kind of in a certain direction and you've had to pivot in relation to having businesses and you were like, no, this actually isn't for me. You were seeing the light in certain things. You were living by your values. How important has it been for you to actually do that exploration for those two years that we were speaking off air about and actually figuring out what your true values were so that you can have that kind of self-reflection? Because I think it is a buzzword, but I do think it's also a misunderstood word that it's like, I'm going to turn to the Buddha if I'm self-reflective. Yeah, no, it was super important. I kind of looked at it like I was life's like a game and I was had strategically gone the wrong direction. So I needed to just stand still and just let the world spin around me to see, well, what's the next move I wanted to make and plot out like, what is my vision for life and how do I get there? What's the type of life I want? I can't, I can't remember which author or podcaster I heard talking about it, but it was something that really resonated with me there saying right now you're page one of your book. Your life is not how you want it to be right now, but you're the author. You get to write this story. So write the story and write in amazing adventures, kick-ass journeys, amazing relationships. How does this story play out? Because you're the author and you get to write this story. But for me to start creating the headspace to write that story, I had to stand still and I had to delete and eradicate all the other chains and sort of burdens that were stopping me from starting with a blank page. And when you were kind of having those thought processes, when you were on that self-reflection journey, how did you know or what direct or what was the right direction for you? Like, cause it was probably certain times where a certain direction came in. Did you dip the toe into that? Or did you kind of know that it was going to be like, I'm going to give myself a certain lot of time. And after a certain lot of time, I'm going to make a decision. Yeah, no, I, I didn't have an allotted amount of time. If it, it could have been six weeks, it could have been nearly six years. It was really funny at the time because I just started dating my current girlfriend uh, towards the end of that reflective piece. And I would be a, you know, her plus one at a wedding and her friends would be like, oh, so what do you do? And I'd be like, nothing. And she's like, would you not like to help people? You do something. I'd be like, it just freaks people out because they want to put you into that box. They want to say, she's like, would you not tell people you're a lawyer? I was like, well, I'm not a lawyer. She's like, would you not tell people you're a cyclist? I'm like, well, I'm not a cyclist. So it's like, you aren't what you do. And when you're not what you do, people find it really difficult to put you into that box and it freaks them out. It's like Tommy Tiernan has a story about standing still in the bank. If you go in and stand still in the bank, 
they'll ask you like once or twice, what are you doing? He's like, but if you just stand there still long enough, he's like, you'd be shot by lunchtime. People don't like you just standing still in life. And I definitely had that experience of maybe a little bit of social judgment of what are you doing right now? Like, is your life just you sitting around playing video games and watching TV all day, which it wasn't at all. It was like kind of a deep almost it sounds a little bit corny and cliche to say like a spiritual inquisition into where i wanted to go and who i wanted to be and what i wanted to do you talk about the social judgment how did you like i know you're saying it quite flippantly there that like oh i'm not a lawyer i'm not a cyclist but when that was actually happening to you at weddings and stuff like that did you feel the awkwardness or was it you would be you were comfortable enough in your own skin to say no i'm i'm anthony walsh that's that's who i am yeah you know it's this is a criticism i suppose not criticism but this uh conversation is one i definitely have with my mom quite a lot because you know she put me through school and yeah. uh she was very supportive even through my journey through law school and she's like oh but you don't use law anymore but i feel like it's such a safety net and it gave me such a confidence because of how society perceives a legal qualification that it gave me an inner confidence on inner belief to stand still without like maybe i still did have judgment coming from uh exterior and peers but i didn't feel like the judgment was piercing me i felt like it was okay he's just figuring himself out as opposed to well he's a total deadbeat dropout who's doing nothing with his life and maybe and i'm sure you find this with the podcast as well and it's kind of an extension of that I find that I have these circles of people who I care about their opinions. And, you know, the podcast is, you know, we're north of 100,000 people tuning in every week now. So you're getting flooded with messages on social coming in or emails coming in unsolicited. And you're never going to please all the people all the time. You get, you know, criticism, you know, mild criticism all the way to threatening legal letters occasionally. But I care so little about what most people think but then i care massively about what a small group of people think like i care so much about what my sister thinks what my girlfriend thinks what my mom thinks what my dad thinks but outside that i really am in that bothered of what people think has that taken training or was that just i think it was probably just a really privileged and nice supportive upbringing where i was never pushed in any direction even though i would have been quite good in school i was never pushed towards academia i was allowed to pursue you know I, I loved soccer and i tried to be a pro soccer player and i was allowed to kind of go my own directions always in life without that judgment of you know teachers would be saying oh you really need to knuckle down because you could get into x course and i that pressure was never something i felt at home so maybe i could step out into the world and you know you've pressure from expectations from coaches and managers and teachers and all these conflicting pressures pulling at each other but then when i went back into my home environment it was such a safe loving supportive environment that it just gave me this sort of inner confidence to go well you actually can do anything you want you could literally start from scratch right now and do anything you want and i know a lot of kids start from that place where you know you're told you're at five years old you're like i want to be an astronaut and the parents are like oh that's amazing little johnny you want to be an astronaut but then at 16 if you say you want to be an astronaut it's like grow up you're a dreamer i never had that like i could literally go home to my parents house tonight and tell them i want to be an astronaut my mom be like that's amazing how are you going to do that like it was just such an amazing supportive environment that's rare it is yeah, rare. I, it's, it's rarer than most people think yeah I, I don't i don't know if it is yeah from 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 talking to people on a daily basis, with clients and stuff like that, and and from having my own, like my parents have been amazing, um, and they've supported me when I when I made the pivot from recruitment and had to take time off work from work to kind of sort out my head and look out for my mental health, and then starting on my own business. But they've since said to me, it's kind of like we were a little bit skeptical of when you set up your own business, but we had to let <laughs> you run with it to try and figure it out to see if it was for you. And I'm glad they let me do it because I've heard of other people whose parents, I would be like, no, you're not doing that. You're going down the medical route. You're going down the legal route. But I'm actually glad my parents have probably let me, I probably more learned more about myself in the last four and a half years or five and a half years than I did probably in the, the 29 before it. 
because I've been allowed to experiment, I've been allowed to fall, I've been allowed to actually do something that I enjoy, but I've also been allowed to learn how different people tick. Because when I was in recruitment, it was all about getting so a bum onto a seat and getting them into a job. With this, it's actually learning how that person ticks, getting them into the goal and sorting out the process that gets them to their goal. And that fascinates me. So what was their, and this is me putting on podcast, asking the questions, <laughs> putting on the podcaster uh, host. So what was your parents' hesitancy with you pursuing that dream? And is there anything from that hesitancy that you take now and apply into working with your clients? Yeah, so my parents both were in the same uh, companies, respective companies for like 70 years between the two of them, 72 years between the two of them. So like, that's a lifetime. <laughs> um, so they were so used to that. And that's the, that's the old way, the old regimented way. But like, if you look at it now, people will probably hot job hop every three years, maybe. Yeah. Um, and what I've learned about from them is you can grow from, you can start at the bottom and rise it up through perseverance, having to eat shit for sometimes. Like at times there was, my dad was lecturing in Waterford on a job in Wexford and then coming home at night to put myself and my brother to bed. So there was sacrifice along the way because he values being able to spend time with us, being able to put food on the table for us, but also realizing that he had to go in the career that he wanted to be able to get to a certain career stage so he wouldn't need to worry about money when he got a little bit older. And now he's happy on the golf course five times a week. Happy days, probably a scratch golfer now. He's definitely not. <laughs> he's one of those cowboys. That's what he is. He, 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 I think he, he flushed a few shots on purpose. Um, no, but I think, I, I think it's, it's important. Like not everyone is lucky with that for, and fortunate. And I would count myself in that fortunate bracket of having those supportive parents. Obviously they'll have, they'll say something that may not agree with you and all that kind of stuff. You don't have to agree with everything your parents say. And my mom always says, if you want to go traveling, go traveling. If you want to be self-employed, be self-employed. She'll be like, this is your life. You have to go and live your life. And I'll always remember that from what she has said. Well, and you know what? The, the common thread in that that I find that makes all that possible to go and explore, to go and travel, to go and live your life that I found and the accidentally didn't make this misstep. It's when you take on too much debt, it's a really difficult place to back out of. And I was so close to this when I was running all those businesses where I was so close to thinking, you know, maybe I'll get that car lease. Maybe I'll buy this apartment. Maybe I'll, and once you do that, I find that's a difficult place to back out of because now you've taken on these material possessions, maybe to paper over the fact that you truly aren't happy and you get this transient happiness from these material possessions, or you're looking for external validation through these material possessions, which is so prevalent in Irish culture. Oh, your man is doing well. Look at the car he's driving. Geez, business must be good. But now when we want to start fresh and we want to start from the blank page to rewrite our story. We can't back out of these you know, legal obligations that we have to service this debt. And that's a very hard, dark place that I'm so glad I accidentally nearly, or maybe it was parental advice, didn't take on too many obligations that made it hard for me to back out of it and start again. Yeah, I would I would be on that. I, my, I'll, my parents always said, don't get a credit card. Because you'll always be paying it off. And yeah. I was like, if you want something, save up for it so that you'll get it. It may take you longer than you expect, but if you want something, actually go and get it. And actually makes you think about, right, do I want a car? And then in like six months from then, you're like, I actually don't want a car. I'm actually going to go on holidays with my girlfriend. And there's such a powerful metaphor in there where you were talking about, you know, okay, maybe I'm going to go on holidays with my girlfriend. It's You have this ability to start fresh. And I read a lot of Stoic philosophy. It's something I've gone into a lot in the last few years. And one of the brilliant uh, Stoic teachings that I take and I use every single day, it's this idea of starting over. So you can have the shittiest workout for 45 minutes in the gym. You just can't get anything done. You're getting distracted, no quality. Every machine you want to use is taken up and it's the worst workout you've ever had. But there's nothing to say that the next 45 minutes can't be the greatest workout you've ever had. If you just flick that switch and start over. And I try and take this mentality through my day. Oftentimes I'll look at the clock and I'll look at my to-do list and I'll be like, oh my God, it's four o'clock. I've got none of the stuff I'd hope to do done today. 
and I'll go meditate for 10, 15 minutes and I'll uh, diary on, I'll say, okay, start over. What's the next best thing I can do? Can I make the four o'clock to 10 o'clock period, the greatest four o'clock to 10 o'clock period I've ever had? And you can take this philosophy in work. You can take this philosophy with conversations with your significant other, with a workout, with your diet, because we're so bad for this this kind of idea of, sure, I may as well be hung for a sheep as hung for a lamb. You have two biscuits after dinner and you're like, oh, the diet's ruined now. I may as well have the whole packet. No, you can start over and you could have your perfect diet from now until bedtime. Yeah, as soon as you said start over, I could hear the reset button thing in my head for what I say to clients. Like one meal didn't put on the weight. One meal is not going to lose the weight. So why are we fretting about one meal? Or one biscuit or two biscuits or three biscuits. They weren't the issue. It's the continuous effort that you put in. Yeah. And there was days you can't be good or bad. That's the biggest thing. You're demonizing things. You can't be good or bad. That's where like the ego speaks up and say, well, I must be this way to be accepted. I must be this way to get validated. And that's unfortunately what a lot of people believe is when they lose a certain amount of weight, they're going to get, they're chasing validation. That's ultimately what it is. Well, I'm a certain weight. And then you're like, almost like my, my friends will accept me for this. Like your friends aren't with you because of what you weigh. They couldn't literally give a shit. Your parents don't love you because of what you weigh. They literally couldn't give a shit. But you'll find out if you get to a certain number and it's like with the validation that you're searching for, the validation that you're seeking, especially with you're talking about the possessions, the car, the fancy house, whatever it may be as well. The actual validation that you're seeking is actually from yourself because if people give you the validation, what you'll find is they actually won't believe it. And if they said something negative, you'll actually probably believe that more because that's cognitive bias speaking up and saying, well, they've said something negative to me. They've called me fat or they've said I have a double chin or whatever it may be. And because I've said that to about myself, it must be true. But it's not what other people want. And that's the hardest part for most people to actually listen to is a lot of things that we do on a daily basis or can be if you're not in line with your values is you're doing it for other people. Yeah, you and you, you know what? Just Most people just don't care. Like most people are so wrapped up in their own shit. Like they're so wrapped up in their own car, they're so wrapped up in their own career, they're so wrapped up in their own problems. They just don't care as much as you think they do about. And it's easy for us with, you know, we talked about Brian Keane as well, and I put us all into that kind of collective podcaster space. It's easy to think because we've an amplified message through podcasting that people care a bit more. Honestly, people just don't care. They're so wrapped up in their own stuff. No one cares what bike I'm riding. No one cares what shoes or wheels I'm buying. No one cares what direction I go with stuff. It's, it needs to come, like you're saying, with that internal story and that internal message. Because until that's playing the right music in your head, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I think you, I think people do need to do some value. Kind of, there's an amazing book, John D. Martini, The Values Factor. I had him on the podcast, actually. Yeah, his his book is incredible, and it will make you think. That book, it's one of those books you kind of have to kind of do the exercise as you go along. There's no point in just reading through it. It won't work otherwise. Um, and it, it, it is amazing to see what you actually think you valued. And once you actually challenge them through the exercises that he suggests, that is actually probably something completely different. And sometimes it's important to maybe have that saved somewhere or potentially have that saved on your phone or your computer, or whatever it is, and have a look at it now. And then are, actually, are you, are your actions aligning with what you're actually, what you value? Because that's interesting, yeah. Like that's reassessing, rechecking in, and looking actually, are your processes getting to you where you actually want to go? Because I know I found I've got I've got caught up in a few things which we were talking off air recently. Is like, well, is this actually what I want to do? As in whatever the goal was, and then you look at it internally and say, well, no, this is actually probably what people are probably expecting out of me. And when you've realised that, it's like, well, then that's not what it is. So I've started trying to use my calendar for this and I'm trying to be a slave as much as I thought I'd never wanted to be this person. It's almost like that discipline gives you the freedom to be who you want to be. So I look at what are my core values and I really try and live quite ancestrally. I try and live doing some really simple things and a a big part of our coaching program, we've sort of these five pillars we've on the bike training, we've strength training, we've nutrition, we've motivation and we've biohacking. So I try and go, well, well, where am I getting these five areas, which are all important to me into my week? So I've actually started scheduling them. So I know 
this evening from four o'clock onwards, I'm racing tonight. So I'm going to ride out to the race. I'm going to come home. I know after this call, I'm going to the beach and I'm going to get into the water. I'm going to get some grounding on my shoes off in the sands. I'm going to get some cold thermogenesis in the RC. So I'm actually scheduling the time for the stuff that's important to me. Because I think so many people, we have values and we say, okay, well, these are our values. We're, out, we're an outdoorsy person. Connecting with nature is a value of ours. But then you audit our week and you look at it and it's like, you haven't done that. You've been on Zoom all week. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I've literally had that conversation with uh, someone this morning. I was like, I asked them, like, they, they, they just felt a little bit lost. I was kind of talking to them. I was like, well, what do you actually value? And they're like, oh, I value exercise. I value going climbing and so on. I was like, well, if, you, if I look at your schedule right now, it's not in there. So it's not that you actually value it. It's just not because as John Martini says, you'll always do what you value more. And if you actually valued it, you'd have it into your day. But most people are too busy caught up in this rat race of doing things for the people, people pleasing. But when people actually realizing people pleasing is what more about what you want out of us than the other person, it it actually just a light bulb goes off in their head. People pleasing is pure selfishness. It's what use what, what how it makes you feel from helping someone else rather than actually what the other individual wanted in the first place. Yeah. I, I don't know if I fully agreed with him of you because it was easy. I had him on the podcast and he was sitting on his boat, the uh, world cruising around the world. And he's, you know, made wow. a level of financial success where he can outsource everything he doesn't want to do, but that's not the reality for most people. And he had that line. He said in my podcast as well. And I actually found the podcast with him a little rigid. I found like he had a script and he didn't want to deviate from this script that he had over and over. And it's like, all right, well, do you want to actually have a conversation or do you want to read off your script? So he had this idea of, we will do what we value. And like, I'm not sure about that. If you look at most people, it's, there's a sense of, you know, I, I could value exercise, but it's really difficult to fit it in, in some circumstances. And it's, most it was the idea of during the structure. Yeah, but it was during the pandemic, you know, we got these catch-all taglines of, you know, we're all in this together, but everyone's reality is not the same. Like, we're all in this together looks very different in a five-bedroom semi-detached house in Stellorgan than it does in a one-bedroom flat in Ballymun. You know, everyone's reality is different. So you could have a, a value, but it, when you start out, and I'm sure you went on this journey as well, and me and Paul Darmody talked about it, you start reading, you know, your Tony Robbins and your self-help books. And it's then you're going off and you're lecturing, you're pontificating to people saying, oh, yeah, if you like exercise, like you should exercise because we all have the same 24 hours in the day. It's all about priorities, but it's not. We have obligations as well on top of that. So we have obligations and we have values and you need to be a super disciplined person to get your values in all the time around those obligations. And you know, I don't have any kids and I have a, a nice setup at work and it's easy for me to get those values and structure it into my Google calendar every day. But I'm also aware that I have clients coming in that just don't have that reality that I have to work really, really hard with them to try and find 15 minutes for a workout, 20 minutes for a workout. And it's a crazy hours of the morning or crazy hours of the night because they're single parents, because they're working 60, 70 hours a week. So I think they do bang heads a bit, those obligations and values and sitting on the boat, sailing around the world. It's not always easy to see that reality. Yeah, no, I, I would, I would probably tend to. Did you listen to? Do you remember uh, Stephen Bartlett, who we were talking about, Diary of a CEO? Yeah, he had a big interview with Molly May. So Molly May was on Love Island, right? So she's goes out with Tommy Fury, Tyson Fury's brother, and she is the creative director for Pretty Little Things at okay. the age of twenty two or twenty three, and she said a sentence on an episode with Stephen Barton, which got taken out of context and she got thrown under the bus. <laughs> he basically said that everyone has the same opportunities. I don't believe that's a thing, but I also do believe that we are able to create a life for ourselves if we are in align with whatever values we have. Most people don't have values. don't know what their values are. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I think I played poker a lot when I was a pro cyclist to pay back my law school loans. And so I loved the uh, poker analogies. I had a great system as well because I was playing poker and I decided I had a poker coach and everything. And I consumed every poker book I could get. So I got to a decent level, you know, reading Dial Brunson super systems and stuff. But I was like, I'm never going to beat good poker players like that dedicate their lives to this because I'm not dedicating my life to it. 
So I figured out I was living in the US. So I figured out, okay, all I need to do is log on and play Irish and British online casinos at the time when everyone is pissed coming home from the pubs in Ireland and the UK. So I'd log on at like 3 a.m. Irish UK time and I'd play against the drunk people. So I was like, I don't need to be the best. I just need to be better than them. But so I love these poker analogies, but I think we do all get to decide how we play our hands and we can play our hands in life many different ways, but we all get a different hand. So it's up to us to make the very best of the hand we're given. But I think some people, you know, in life, they are dealt, they're dealt bad hands and there's only so much you can do with a bad hand. Yeah, I would tend to agree. That there are like, I've, some of the stories I've heard from clients on a daily basis, like some are truly horrifying um, and nobody deserves to go through that shit. And they've created a life for them for, out of something that has potentially happened to them as a kid. And whether that be the right reason or the right direction that they wanted to go, but it may be a means to an end. And sometimes it can be just going and realizing that you almost need to like plod along and then find your value rather than this enlightenment, which the Buddha talks about. Um, I had a brilliant podcast guest. He's worth you getting as well on your podcast. Uh, Dublin guy, friend of mine. Uh, his name's Jerry Redmond. I had him on the podcast last year. Jerry has such a brilliant story. He came from a really difficult upbringing in Darndale and through this super difficult uh, childhood, he managed to emerge and he got a pro contract playing for Dunfermline. And he went over playing for Dunfermline and he was only there a couple of months and going really well. I think he scored a hat-trick in one of his first games over there. Like the world at his feet, he'd broken free from Darndale surroundings and he was going to be a pro soccer player. And he got a message back home saying his dad had been sent to jail. So he came back home and his dad had gone to jail for uh, an offense and which he gets into on the podcast. And it was up to him as the oldest sibling to look after his younger siblings. So he had to walk away from his career as a professional footballer and at the age of 17, come home and care for his younger siblings. And he's living in Darndale and he looked around and he's like, there's not a lot of opportunity here for a 17 year old in Darndale. And he had some reprisals because of his dad's crime. He had some reprisals on his family. So he had to try and figure out how to protect his family from this criminal reprisals and figure out how to pay the bills and keep the family safe all at the age of 17. So he took the same dedication and application that he put into sport and he put it into criminality and he put it into joining gangs and the criminal underworld. And he rose right up in the criminal underworld to the point that he got arrested for, uh, you know, I think it was quite a, a trivial crime, but he got arrested for it and he was in Mount Joy. And I think that night in Mount Joy, he shared a cell with uh, someone who uh, had murdered somebody and his dad was in Mount Joy as well. And he'd recently had a child himself. So we said he had this, you know, come to Jesus moment where he said, if I don't clean up my life now, my son is going to be in here as well. And we're going to repeat the cycle. So he broke the cycle and it took him years to get out of the criminal gangs, but he broke the cycle. But yet back on the values and uh, opportunity thing, you know, it's very difficult for uh, John D. Martini to talk about values in a situation like that. What are your, your values when you've, your house is under attack, your dad's gone to jail, you've, you're 17 years old, you're a child and you're entrusted with minding a whole family and upbringing his mom had gone to pieces. And so it's, situations are definitely different, but he's a fascinating guy. It's uh, would be a really worthwhile guest for your podcast. Yeah, definitely. He sounds very like, uh, have you heard of Brian Penny? I know who he is. He's the bank robber. And uh, no, so Brian Penny was a former heroin addict. So okay. he had a, he was a kid and had a intestinal issue. I think it was, um and he there was trauma in his in his life and there was trauma from that actual injury and the surgery didn't know what was going on with him and through that he the the wiring or the internal wiring kind of led him down the path of having a um an addictive personality went down the road of heroin addiction all this kind of stuff was basically a functioning druggie um and was in a career and but was going from the career to going to get the, the next drugs. Like he, he has an amazing book out, but he's turned his life around now. And he had a radio show on one of the, the big radio stations. He has a book out, but now he's also lecturing uh, in Trinity. Um, after turn that, he's a fascinating character. 
Um, and there was a program on TG Car about him um, recently enough. Um, so if anyone hasn't listened to the Brian Penny episode that I had with him, I would highly recommend getting his book as well and highly recommend listening to that episode. He, he, he speaks like it's almost as if you're watching the film of his life when you're when he's talking. He's very like you can it's 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 incredible to actually sit with him and actually talk with him. Um, but he's also turned his life around. He's realized what's been important for him. Was it the straight path that people believe? And I think that's literally what this whole episode is going to be about is success isn't a straight line. It's yeah. it's finding a direction that works for you, whatever tools you have in your arsenal and go in a direction that you say you potentially want and trying to live your values. I know what you're saying about John Martini and on his yacht and stuff. Um, not, but he, he also, I don't know what his pre, his, his childhood was like either. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't and know. I think as well, we're all slightly unfinished as well. And I had interviewed uh, on my podcast, huge name in cycling. He's one of my bucket list guests. I haven't released it yet. George Hincapie. And he was Lance Armstrong's Lieutenant for seven years and seven Tour de France's, you know, Roy Hanman. And they came to Europe as uh, Americans, totally unknown, and they took over the world and they changed the sport forever. And, you know, I've, it, it, there's since been, you know, doping controversies and stuff around that it. it was a dirty generation in cycling. But Hincapie and Armstrong, I wouldn't have started my podcast. I wouldn't be in cycling without them. They changed the game. They brought it from a niche European sport that there was no English speakers really in. There was some exceptions. Uh, Ireland Shea Elliott was a notable one but it was really a French Belgian dominated sport and they changed the game and chatting to George he has a biggest cycling podcast in the world that he co-hosts with Lance Armstrong you know I think they're doing like a million euro revenue per episode or something huge like he's just got a hotel domestique in Carolina he's got his own clothing brand he's got a series of events but talking to him as well because you know I'm on his coattails I'm many steps behind them but I feel like I'm trying to go on the same path it's easy to look at him and just see the tip of the iceberg and see the finished products and think, oh, he has everything figured out. He has everything perfect. But you don't see the stumbling blocks. You don't see the hard work. I watched the US Masters recently and you see McElroy hitting the ball 350 yards down the center of the fairway. And you're like, it's a miracle. But you don't see 15, 20 hours in the driving range, hitting drives, shanking drives till his hands bleed, begging his dad, can he go home? You don't see this hard work. We always discount the hard work under the surface. So, you know, listening to your struggles pre-podcast and mine, it's easy for listeners sometimes to put people with a platform up on a pedestal and say they have it figured out. But chatting to Hincapie, I was like, he doesn't have it figured out. He's still unfinished. He's still flawed. He's still moving forward and stumbling. He's probably watching someone else. Yeah. And looking at them and saying, well, I'm not a finished article. Because I think we do... Like comparing a chapter 15 to a chapter one or whatever it may be is the kind of the analogy, but it's kind of looking at someone and saying, well, if I get to that level, well, what's next after that? But you're also, you have to enjoy what you're doing to get to that level. That's the biggest problem for most people as well. They think they'll be they're happy when they get the CEO or the AVP in a certain finance company, but they won't if they're not, if they're not aligning with what they want to do. And that's the hardest part. Like your 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 passion is cycling, but you had to go the other route to get to where you're going. You went down the legal route. You figured out it wasn't for you, but you're also still using certain tools from it right now, and it's brought you certain tools, and you're still using them on a daily basis. You're aligning with what you want to do right now, and you're looking at right. This is where I want to be this time. This is where I want to be next year. This is where I want to be next year. You've prop you've lined out what your map is, and you've got your actions. In order to, you would set out your three goals beforehand. The third one fascinated me. I was like, I really hope you forget that one. Obviously, I've only ever listened to one of his episodes. Yeah. So it was at the start of the year, I was just like, well, what do I want? And I I've, I think I've suffered sometimes, I said, from a, a lack of imagination with how big is the vision. And it's something I'm working on at the moment. And I know we, this potential, we could be in the same mastermind uh, group down the line. And it's well, probably my, my biggest struggle is, well, what is, what is my vision? And it's not, I'm not struggling with creating a vision. I'm struggling with creating a vision that's big enough that it scares me. I'm struggling with creating a vision that's, I started out with the podcast and even at the start of the year, the, the journey to podcast and the explosion in numbers I've had from January to now, like I had a chat, my girlfriend managed to quit her corporate job in Johnson and Johnson 
at the start of the new year and she came on working full-time on the podcast and the coaching company with me which has been brilliant but i had a chat in at the start of the new year when we were evaluating and kind of planning out our quarter one quarter two objectives and it was a legitimate chat saying do i wrap up the podcast it like is this it? is the is the juice worth the squeeze on it because it's i have this again that to rattle back to stoic philosophy it's like how we do anything is how we do everything and i felt like i was going through the motions a little bit with the podcast and i was like i'm not sure if it represents my best work i'm not sure if i'm proud of it i can mind what you're saying by the way like uh, yeah i felt like i was just getting it out and it got me thinking about a story when i was a kid my dad was in the army but you know the army didn't pay brilliant and he you know, wanted a little bit better for the family so to make a bit of extra disposable income he built bikes and that's probably where my love for cycling came he built bikes in the back shed all day long so any spare moment he had he'd be down the back shed and he'd be building bikes and he'd be selling the bikes so i ended up being a forced child labor <laughs> at a very early age so he'd give me a job to do and he'd say okay take the brake system off bike a and put it onto bike b so I'd go off and I'd do it, but I'd be rattling through it because I wanted to get back out on the street and play football with the lads. And I'd go into my like that, I have that done, I have it finished. And I remember one day he just asked me a question. He said, okay, cool. I'm going to come out and have a look at your the work you've done. Are you proud of the work you've done? And I was like, shit, I'm not proud of it. I was like, give me a minute. And I went back out and spent another half an hour just making small little, almost imperceptible tweaks to how it was set up, but to a point that I was proud of the work. And when I had this moment at the podcast, I was like, I'm not that proud of it at the turn of the year coming into 2022. So I said, if I'm going to keep doing it, I'm going to double down and I'm going to create something that I'm proud of. And I had this, you know, bucket lists uh, of guests I wanted to get. And I've got a good chunk of the guests that I wanted. And then three of the big goals, the biggest ones I had, the biggest stretch ones was to get George Hink happy on the podcast, to get Lance Armstrong on the podcast and to guest on Joe Rogan. So I've got one of the three in the bank. I feel like I have a good angle into Armstrong as the podcast guest as well, because obviously Hink Happy is good mates with him. So that one might happen at some point this year as well. So still working on two and three. But yeah, I definitely at times feel that's the weakness for me. That's can I paint a vision that's big enough? Because the vision I painted for the podcast, it's like, okay, I'm almost like, I feel like I'm there. So I now I need to step into what is the next vision of the podcast i looked at the podcast like rich roll and tim ferris and it's like oh look at the cool show notes page he had and now i look at it, it's like okay well i have all that stuff that i thought was cool about his product i'm getting all the cool guests he's getting so i'm like have i arrived at this destination so i feel like i just need to set something bigger but i, I don't i can't define what that is right now and that's maybe where my weakness is right now i don't think it's a weakness I think it's probably a strength that you're actually not rushing into something, that you're actually trying to realign things. You're actually like saying, right, I have my three goals for the people who I want to get on. You've taken the pause back and said, right, I actually want to double down this podcast and jump ahead and, and, and actually challenging yourself to push it as far as you can. But it's also having that courage to do that because most people wouldn't, wouldn't take that, that jump in head first into something and if they, if they didn't truly believe in something. You wouldn't be doing this if it didn't align with what you're trying to do. Yeah, I would do it for free all day long. You know, that's why I love guesting on podcasts. Like you reached out and you're like, we'd be guesting on the podcast. It's like, hell yeah. Like it's, you know, the middle of a work day and, you know, it's boxing off two hours and it's the first time we've ever chatted. And I'm like, yeah, I love having conversations. You know, it's. Yeah, and if there are none of the questions that I've written. <laughs> Absolutely zero. I've looked yeah, at the questions right now. I've asked you nothing that I've actually written. I've talked about IF and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, fuck this. So, uh, no, I did. I know I'm conscious of time as well. Um, but like the, the highlight today is definitely like success is in a straight line, going by your values, hiding set goals, dealing with the crashes and the, the talks and stuff like that around that and the importance of starting over. I think they're the main messages that I've kind of learned from the podcast from having the chat with you today. So, Anthony, I cannot thank you enough for giving us so much of your time. Where can people find out about the podcast? Where can people find out about yourself? And if people are interested in the cycling, where can people work with you? I think romancycling.com is the website. I think that's kind of everything is linked up there. That's mission control. The podcast is, you know, in all usual podcasty type places, uh, Roadman Cycling Podcast. And uh, Instagram, I think it's roadman.cycling. Uh, but yeah, over, I think the, yeah, the main hope where everything is linked up is over on romancycling.com.
So, Trent, thank you very much for having me on your podcast and keep doing the good work. Thank you very much, Anthony. Really appreciate it. Cheers, buddy. As always, guys, if you've enjoyed this episode at all, please do tag Anthony on your stories. And please do, if you have guests or people you want on, please do send me a DM and I'll try my best to get them on. But please do share it. Please do support. Please do follow. Please do whatever you can in relation to promote the podcast and we'll see it continue to grow as much as we can. So I hope you guys enjoyed the episode.